Good morning, everybody. Uh, Today is Palm Sunday, a day where we celebrate the beginning of, of the Passion Week, where Jesus rode into town, riding on a donkey, with people waving palm fronds and laying their coats down, declaring, Hosanna in the highest. The declaration that the king had come. Now, what I love about the story of the Bible is that Jesus doesn't just show up out of nowhere. We we get to see who he is, who's coming. As as, uh, Lynn read that story uh, for us today, that passage for us today, we begin to see in the scriptures this question, particularly in the book of Luke, as we've been working through the book of Luke now for, I don't know, seven, eight months, uh, we've seen this building to this big question, which is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We should be asking that question as we move through the gospel of Luke. Now, I want you to think about this. We've seen this question come up already several times. Most recently, back when we uh, talked about Jesus calming the storm. And we see it in the the, the disciples. The disciples ask the question, who then is this? That he commands even the winds and water and they obey him. This question, who is Jesus, is asked four different times in three different ways, three different times in four different ways, in just two chapters. This must be a question that we should be looking to answer. Who is Jesus? Now, if we go into chapter 9, just a little bit further before what we just read, we see that not only are the disciples asking this question, but so are the leaders of the land. Those that aren't following Jesus, those who uh, aren't uh, the, the, the early Christians, so to speak, but the leaders of the land. We see this from Herod the Tetrarch in chapter 9, verse 7 through 9. It says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, there was a clear mystery in the air. Something was happening, or at least people were saying that something was happening. There was this teacher that was out there, and there were these signs and these miracles that were happening. It was like something out of the Bible, right? It was like something right out of the Old Testament. And so the the answers to the question, who is Jesus, naturally, came from the Old Testament, right? I mean, if you think about it, this sounds like something that would come right out of the Bible. So where do you go for answers? You go to the Old Testament. And they say, maybe it was, maybe it was Elijah. Maybe, it was a, a, maybe this is a prophet of old come back from the dead. These whispers and rumors certainly got back to Jesus. And so he confronts his disciples with the very question that Herod the Tetrarch was asking others. Jesus asked them the question twice in two different ways. Now, we already read the passage, so we won't read it again, 
But in Luke chapter 9, verse 18 through 20, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? So there it is. We see in two chapters the same basic question asked four times. Who is Jesus? Now this question is essential. It's fundamental. So here we are on Palm Sunday, supposed to be tuning our minds toward Easter. Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The whole thing that our faith hinges on. And Easter only has relevance depending on the answer to this question, who is Jesus? Now, as we've moved through the book of Luke over the last several months, from time to time, I've taken us back to the opening words of Luke, which helps set the scene for what Luke is trying to accomplish. And so what I want us to do real quick is to read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and, and begin to see something here. Luke opens his book by saying this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the purpose statement of the book. Why did Luke write this book? Well, I mean, first and foremost, it says here, to provide an orderly account of what has happened in the ministry of Jesus. That's good. He lets us know what he did. Okay? He also wants to provide eyewitnesses, eyewitness testimony about what Jesus did. This isn't just hearsay. He interviewed people who saw it. So he's giving us eyewitness accounts. But then look right here at the end in verse 4. It's so that his readers can have certainty concerning the things that they had been taught about Jesus. So they could have certainty about the things they had been taught about Jesus. In other words, the book of Luke is written to answer the question, who is Jesus? Now, as we saw already in chapters 8 and 9, this question is one that gets asked by all kinds of people. But this wasn't the first time the question was asked. It was asked in Luke chapter 5, verse 21. We have the Pharisees asking this question when Jesus healed the paralyzed man and forgave him his sins. We have this in Luke 5, 21. And the scribes and Pharisees begin to question, saying, Who is this? who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone. Now, I love this. Look right there at the end. What, what, what do they say? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The answer to that is no one. So if their sins are really forgiven, what are they, what, what's Luke saying? Why is he recording this for us? He's telling us who Jesus is. All right, this isn't the only time that his, his enemies are asking this question skeptically. All right, the guests at, at uh, the Pharisee Simon's house basically ask the same thing in chapter 7, verse 49, when the sinful woman inter, uh, interrupts the meal to wash Jesus' feet. We have this in verse 49. It says, Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? So who is he? Who is Jesus? His enemies want to know. 
The crowds around the Pharisees want to know. We've seen the disciples when they were on the boat and the wind was stopped. They want to know. Even the local leader, Herod the Tetrarch, wants to know. And the people around Jesus are beginning to form opinions. So who is Jesus? What have we seen so far in the book of Luke? If we were to go back through and look at the pages and number the things that Luke has shown us so far, who is Jesus? Well, he's a healer. He is a wise teacher. He's a master over demons and a forgiver of sins. We see him as master even over the winds and the seas. He is the giver of life back to dead, from, to the dead. This, this is who Jesus is. This is who he is, uh, Luke is showing him to be. And all these revelations have created quite a stir. The answers to who is Jesus seem to be rooted in what he has done and what he is doing. But if you think about it, all that Jesus has done is merely give us evidence. Evidence without a conclusion. So what does this evidence compile to? Where is all of that heading? Now before we answer that question there is one more piece of evidence that helps us answer that I want us to see today. One more piece of evidence in the big puzzle of who is Jesus. And then after we get that piece of evidence, we're going to take a look at two, decla two declarations that clarify and give meaning to all that Jesus has done. So we're going to look at the evidence, one more piece of evidence, and then we're going to look at two declarations that give meaning to what this evidence all points to. All right, so let's look at this next piece of evidence. Open your Bibles to look at uh, chapter 9. Right after Herod the Tetrarch asks who Jesus is, we get one of the most famous stories in the New Testament. We get the story of the feeding of the 5,000. As a matter of fact, this story is so familiar to probably 95% of us here in the auditorium today that I'm not going to read the whole passage for you. Instead, I'm going to read selections from the passage as we move through the story of the feeding of the 5,000 today. The first thing I want you to do is look at verse 12. So if you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 12. This verse gives us two really important pieces of information that help us understand what's going on at the feeding of the 5,000. All right, if you look at verse 12, we see this. We see that it's late in the day, which means travel home is going to be difficult. Second, we see that they're in the middle of nowhere, all right? So finding support from neighboring towns for this large of a group of people is going to be very difficult. All right, so what we need to see is that these people are not prepared for their time in the wilderness. They are not prepared for their time in the wilderness. But but they are with Jesus. They're ill-prepared in the wilderness, but they are with Jesus. Now, I'm using this word wilderness on purpose. I hope we begin to see our attention drawn to the echoes of Israel being in the wilderness after they fled Egypt in the book of Exodus. All right, so think about the Israelites the Hebrews, as they fled Egypt and they were out in the wilderness. They were in the middle of nowhere. 
They did not have enough provisions to make it. They were in need of bread to eat. They were in need of water to drink. And all the Hebrew people had to get by is the presence of the Lord. He was with them by a cloud by day and a fire by night. And what did God do for his people when they were ill-prepared in the wilderness? He gave them water to drink, and he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, John's gospel in chapter 6 does not miss the connection between Moses and Israel to the feeding of the 5,000. In John's telling of the feeding of the 5,000, the people wanted a second meal from Jesus. And in the next scene, in the next scene after the feeding of the 5,000, in John chapter 6, verse 30 and 31, we have this. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So when Jesus fed the crowds in the wilderness, he was showing them more evidence of who he was. Just like God can provide for his people, the Israelites out in the wilderness, Jesus is a king. Jesus is a king who can provide for his people. He is a king who can provide for the people of the kingdom. Now, I want you to think back to last week. All right, go back to last week and what we talked about with the disciples being sent out. We talked about how the disciples went out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And how did they get sent out? They got sent out without any food and without any money to buy food. Now, if we looked at Luke chapter 9, verse 10, it says that they came back from their mission and they told all that they had done. Now, they came back from their mission. That means one fundamental thing. They did not die on their mission, okay? All right, so they did not die on their mission. They came back. What's that mean? Since they came back alive, it has to be a story of how God provided for them. Now, it seems so trivial, but when you think about it like that, things begin to make more sense as you move through the story. Now, here all these people are in this, this crowd of people, and they're hungry, and they're with the provider, the one who, who, like Moses in the wilderness, can provide for people. Well, like God in the wilderness can provide for people, right? Okay, now, they had just been on their mission. They took nothing, and they saw God provide for them. And so what does Jesus tell them? They just went out on this mission where they did miracles, healing people, casting out demons, and now they're here after all their needs had been provided, and they go, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Now think about that in that context. How has Jesus revealed himself to them as provider? How has he revealed himself to them? He has worked through them in his power to advance his kingdom. And he says, you give them something to eat. And, and they, they missed it. They missed that 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 they had that power to give them something to eat, not in their own strength, but in the power of God, because God, through Jesus Christ, is the provider. That is the kind of kingdom that they had been proclaiming. That is what they had been doing on 
their mission. So Jesus, Jesus is about to show them what his kingdom really means and brings. Jesus is a king who can provide just like God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness. And just to make sure they knew that Jesus was the one providing enough for them, the 12 disciples collected 12 baskets of leftovers. Verse 17 tells us that all who were served were satisfied. As I went through and and read this, this passage, it's like, man, I could preach a whole sermon just on that idea of Jesus being the one who satisfies. What a powerful idea. In Christ, we can truly be satisfied, which is exactly what Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, I believe, when he's talking about all the, the heartache he's been through. All right, so just like Luke has shown us, throughout the book, we've seen Jesus is the healer. He's the master over demons. He is the giver of life and forgiver of sins. Now through the feeding of the 5,000, we see that Jesus, through his creative power, is able to provide for his people. So Luke makes it clear that Jesus is the provider. Now all these pieces of evidence are coming together, and the disciples are starting to see all of what this means too. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's starting to make sense. It's starting to coalesce. So who is this guy? Is he Elijah? Now if you think about what Elijah did, think about his ministry. Elijah called fire down from heaven. Elijah raised people from the dead. Is he Elijah? No, he's not Elijah. Is he Moses or one of the prophets who were great teachers who led God's people uh, to repentance and back to him? No, that's not right either. Jesus asked his disciples, all right, not, not who do the crowd say I am, an Old Testament answer that would make sense, right? Okay, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And all this evidence combined with the work of the Holy Spirit in the life and the heart of Peter leads Peter to say, you are the Christ of God. It was clear to Peter that Jesus was something new. The crowds and those who didn't understand wanted to point to Jesus being something old, something again. But Peter makes it plain, this is something new. This is something that was greater than Moses. This is something that's greater than Elijah. Those guys are awesome, but this is the Christ of God. But a question still lingers, okay? Peter's declared it. Jesus is the Christ of God. But what kind of Christ? Now, the word Christ is the same word as Messiah, okay? So what kind of Messiah is this? Would it be like David, that kind of Messiah who who led an earthly kingdom? Would he be a Messiah like Moses who led his people out of captivity? But in this time, instead of being led out of captivity from Egypt, is, is he one who leads his people out of captivity from the Romans? Would he be just another man set in a time to deliver God's people for the day? Or is Jesus someone greater than any of them? 
Now, as we look at the context of chapter 9, we get some amazing clarity. What kind of Messiah is this? Is he like one of the previous general messiahs, or is he different? All right, so we're going to skip a few verses and come around to another powerful story in the life of Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 9. Now, as we move through uh, to, to this passage, we see Peter, James, and John. All right, at this point, they're no longer going to have to count on their experience alone to answer the question, who is Jesus? They're invited to get a glimpse of the kingdom, and they get to hear God answer the question, who is Jesus and what kind of Messiah is he? So you can look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Again, we're not going to read the whole passage today. We're just going to kind of do an overview of the passage. So far, Jesus and his disciples have been preaching a kingdom that is coming, right? They've been preaching a kingdom that is coming. They've been preaching a kingdom that is near. And last week, we talked about how this kingdom has come in part, right? But it has come in a way that is absolutely present, but also in a way that makes us long more as we wait for the day when it comes in full. Now, in this passage, Jesus peels back the the tiniest corner of the kingdom of God and lets Peter, James, and John see his glory and how amazing this kingdom of God is going to be. Peter, James, and John get to see the glory of Jesus. In this story again, much like we saw in the feeding of the 5,000, echoes of Moses in the wilderness, we get to see echoes of Moses again. But as the uh, Bible commentator Daryl Brock points out, this is different. Now, as we we think about the story of the transfiguration, of Jesus being glorified for Peter, James, and John to see, I want you to think about Moses and Moses on the mountain of Sinai. And when Moses is on the mountain of Sinai, he comes down, and the people ask him to put a veil on. Why do they ask him to put a veil on? Because the glory of God is radiating off of him. He had been in the presence of God, and the glory of God shone on his face and now was reflecting out. Now, what Brock points out, and I think this is fascinating, is that Jesus' glory is different than that that Moses brings down. When Jesus comes down, or when Moses comes down off the mountain, he is reflecting God's glory. What we see in uh, Luke is something a little bit different with Jesus. Jesus' glory comes from the inside and flows out. He's not reflecting God's glory, although he does do that. This is his own glory. Now, now Brock says this because if you look at the order of events, it talks about his face shining first, then his clothing. So it's almost as though that went from the inside out, his glory radiating out. Now, this this is awesome, okay, because not only is he radiating his own glory, but he's not alone. Who's standing there with Jesus as he is radiating his glory, as his glory has come down onto earth? Who's standing there with him? He's standing there with Moses and Elijah. Then in verse 33, Peter gives us one of the understatements in the Bible. Peter says, it's good for us to be here. I mean, yeah, right? So Jesus, radiating his glory, standing there next to Moses and Elijah, 
It's good for us to be here. You know, it just makes me think uh, on a Sunday morning, how do you, oh, it's so good to be in the house of the Lord today, right? That, that's what he's saying. No, no, like, how good is it for them to be here? This is the understatement of the Bible. What a glorious and wonderful thing. And like a goof totally caught up in the moment, he says something silly. Peter suggests that they make three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. And then I love what Luke does. Luke just makes sure we know Peter's kind of a goofball. He speaks too quickly. He didn't realize what he was saying, all right? What are the things that he did here that he didn't realize he was saying? I think it's twofold. One, he was just caught up in the moment, and he felt he needed to say something. Uh, Amen? You ever been caught up in the moment and feel like you need to say something, and then you say the wrong dumb thing? Now, most of you guys have more sense than that, but not this guy. I know how to say the wrong dumb thing. All right, but other than that, what he seems to be doing is accidentally putting Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. But where Moses reflected the glory of God and and Elijah called down the glory of God on the altar and rode in the glory of God in the, the chariot of fire up to heaven, this glory is beyond that. This glory belonged to Jesus. So part of the point of this event was to show these three disciples that Jesus was greater even than Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John get to see Jesus in his glory. He was not going to be another man like from the Old Testament. He was going to be something new. And just to make sure they comprehend what they saw, Luke tells us what happened next. We get to hear the testimony from God himself answering the question, who is Jesus? Luke 9, 35 says this, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Peter, James, and John get to hear the voice of God. Now talk about some clarification. Talk about a declaration. What does all this evidence point to? Where are we headed? What is all this about? How is this happening? Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God, the Chosen One. And this isn't the first time in Luke we've seen this. At the very beginning of his ministry, when he's baptized by John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, we have these words, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Twice now in the book of Luke, Luke has answered the question, who is Jesus with the words of God? And according to God, Jesus is his son. He is pleased with his son. The son is the chosen one. And this son has authority, so you better listen to him. Now, as amazing as this declaration is, let's not forget that Moses and Elijah were there too. And I think that this is a pretty cool and powerful little fact. The crowds were wondering if Jesus was Elijah or one of the prophets of old, maybe even one of the prophets of old like Moses. But Jesus was with Moses and Elijah, which means Jesus couldn't be those guys. All right, the fact is they defer to Jesus. This is important. 
it's easy for us to blow by this stuff because we just take it for granted. But if you lived in that day and you hadn't seen the end of the book, you might have been wondering, who is this guy? Is he one of these Old Testament people come back? And to see these characters, these real people from the Old Testament there with Jesus, deferring to him is a powerful statement to who Jesus is. And for us, we gloss right past it, because of course, he's Jesus, he's the son of God. But to his people in those days, that would have been huge, that would have been gigantic to see their heroes in the faith defer to Jesus. Now, think about this for a second. It's also Moses and Elijah. Who's Moses? Moses is the embodiment of the law. And who's Elijah? The embodiment of the prophets. And what do we see? The law and the prophets deferring to Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Who is Jesus? Are we beginning to see the answer? Peter recognized that Jesus was the Christ of God, the Messiah. But Luke wants his readers to know that Jesus is not merely a Messiah. He's more than the savior of the moment. So think about our comic book heroes. What do we say? They've come to save the day. But as we talked about the kingdom of God, what did we learn about the kingdom of God last week? The kingdom of God transcends earthly boundaries. It transcends rulers of the earth. And it transcends time. So Jesus is more than just a save the day kind of Messiah. He's a save the universe for all time kind of Messiah. That is powerful. That is the kingdom of God that he has come to bring. So what is today? Palm Sunday, where Jesus rode into town as a king, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. Now, we skipped over this just a few minutes ago, all right? But right after Peter makes his big confession that Jesus is the Christ, we see this in Luke chapter 9, verse 21 and 22. It says this. This is Jesus. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So as Jesus was revealing himself to his disciples and to the world, he never lost sight, never lost sight of his mission. He never lost sight. I just want you to think about all that we've seen Jesus do. He just calmed the storm. He just raised a little girl from the dead. He just cast out a legion of demons. He just fed over 5,000 people with one boy's lunch. And yet, what is his mission? He's heading towards suffering. He's brought peace. He's brought relief. He's brought healing. And yet, he tells his disciples that suffering lies ahead for him. What we need to understand is that Jesus clearly had the power and the authority to keep himself safe. But for our sake, 
And for the glory of God, he set aside that power and that authority so that we could be saved. I want you guys to look again at the the story of the transfiguration while Jesus is with Moses and Elijah. Look at verse 30 and 31 with me. It says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, where are Jesus' eyes? Even as he was in the presence of the glory of the Father, even as he is being glorified, where is his attention? He spoke of his departure. He had his eyes set on Jerusalem. Now, interesting, just a quick little side note, the word departure is the same word for exodus, where we get the name of the book, Exodus. Are you seeing the parallels to Jesus and Moses? They're everywhere in this story that Jesus is greater than even Moses. Where are his eyes? Laser focused on accomplishing his mission. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' eyes are on the cross. Later in Luke 9, verse 51, we see that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. We often stop on on Palm Sunday and remember that Jesus marched into Jerusalem to the cries of Hosanna in the highest. We pause to remember that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing on that day. He was marching toward the cross. But what blows my mind is that while he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, revealing his glory to Peter, James, and John, standing with Moses and Elijah, Elijah, his mind was on the cross. That is powerful. He he had his eyes set on Jerusalem. Two times in chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, Jesus tells his disciples that he must suffer. Jesus knew that he was going to war. He was going to do battle with death itself. And he was going to win. He was going to have the victory. And we get to share in that victory. He bore the death that we deserve. The Son of God. Who is Jesus? The Son of God. And he took the shame of our sin upon himself. And by his sacrifice, we have peace with God. And by his resurrection, we have life again and life eternal. Isaiah chapter 53 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So who is Jesus? He's the Christ the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. And as John the Baptist declared, 
He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the healer. But not just the healer of the physical bodies. He is the healer of our souls. He's the provider. But not just the provider of, of something to eat to sustain our flesh. He's the provider of the perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. He is the giver of peace who not just calms the storm in the world around us, he is the one who gives us peace with God. Jesus says in John chapter 11 that he is the resurrection and the life. That's who Jesus is. And that's why Palm Sunday is an important Sunday. Because not only do we remember, like we talked about today, Jesus having his eyes set on Jerusalem. On Palm Sunday, we see him march to Jerusalem like a king, being declared Hosanna in the highest. Praise God, here comes our king. This week, we need to begin to prepare our hearts to remember the resurrection. Paul says that if there's no resurrection, then we are to be pitied among all people the most. This is where our hope rests. Jesus' face was set on Jerusalem. Not just because he knew he was going to suffer and die. His face was set on Jerusalem because he knew the grave could not hold him. What an opportunity we have this week to prepare our hearts to remember his great sacrifice and great victory and that through that victory we might have peace with God. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we thank you and praise you for the way you love us. Father, we thank you and praise you that you want to answer the question, who are you? And Lord, we thank you that you not only give us evidence in your scriptures of who you are, you clarify that evidence and make declarative statements that interpret that evidence for us. You are the Christ, the Son of God. By your wounds, we are healed. Lord, we thank you that your mission was ever present in your mind. That you didn't give way to the temptations of men. That you didn't give way to the uh, ideas of being great as men, no greatness. That, that you didn't give in to self-preservation and protection. But because of your great love for the Father, your zeal for his glory, and your love for us, you marched to the cross to take our place that we could have forgiveness of our sins. Lord, I pray that our hearts would remember that this week. Lord, it's easy to get busy. But as we come together on Friday for Good Friday, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be attuned to your great sacrifice. That because of what you did, we can have a relationship with you and the Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This is our time of response. So I don't know how the Lord is, is working in your hearts and lives. But, but whatever it is, if you just need to come and, and pray before the Lord, the altar is open as we sing. 
If, if you're thinking, I want to know more about what it is to, to trust in this Jesus who revealed himself to us in the scriptures, that I could know, uh, know that peace with God, then come. You can find me. I'll be sitting down here. As I always say, you can talk to a believer who's sitting next to you, and they can tell you more about what it is to believe in Jesus. However God is dealing with you today, then this is the time to respond. Adam, let's stand.